This week on Cool Story, the book that I could not put down, Why Are People So Obsessed With Taylor and Travis? The whiplash that we're all getting on Instagram and is university worth it? This is Cool Story, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. I'm Bree Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. So, Bridie, how was your Latino cruise? <laughs> uh, amazing, obviously. obviously. <laughs> uh, the next morning, my brother said, I don't think I've ever seen anything that hectic. And I've seen people die. <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> He's seen people die because yeah. he's a nurse, just to be clear. An ER room nurse. I see you. Yeah, I yeah, see yeah. you. Sorry. Yeah. And um, so he's seen tons of people. It's like his job to see people die. It was bananas. It was so much fun. Genuinely can't recommend it enough. They had a dance competition where they pulled audience participation and my mum went up and I have the most amazing photographs of my sister's face when mum went up just dying. And then as mum proceeded to sexy dance with a stranger... <gasps> She had just met. I have photos of my husband with his head in his hands. Like I was watching (laughs) mum, but I was like documenting everyone's reactions. And then mum won the dance competition (laughs) with this stranger who it turns out was there with a woman. (laughs) And I had assumed he was single by the way he was behaving. It was, it could not have been any more bonkers. And remind us, you were there for your mother's birthday? Yes, yeah. for her birthday. And yeah. so all of her kids were together. Iconic. And partners. And uh, it Winning was, a sexy dance competition in front of your four children and their partners on a Latino cruise. With a man who is in a relationship, <laughs> but who you were just vibing with so much. It was bonkers. Honestly, I hope I'm that fabulous. Oh, yeah. It's definitely something to aspire to. I cannot tell you how old she is because she would kill me, but she definitely. I thought you said it on the show last week. No, no, no. I would have just oh, said her birthday. Okay. No, no, no. Right. I never said right. her age because uh, she would kill me. But she dead set looks 20 years younger than what her age is and also has, I think, always been a model for me in life not to be freaked out about getting older or to think of getting older as becoming more boring and stayed because of how bonkers she has remained her entire life. <laughs> That is so iconic. So what did you do this week? So I went to the theatre and I really, really want to talk about this play for a few reasons. But before I talk about the actual play, the person I sat next to, to my left, clearly had not listened to our episode about cinema etiquette. Holy fuck. The play is called Oil. Amongst many other things, it explores humans' sort of love and like death affair, I guess, with oil, like from the beginning of kerosene through to the sort of Gulf oil crisis, like goes through time. And so by its nature, it is somewhat political. You can't talk about oil without talking about geopolitics, etc. And the woman to my left was like with her sighs and grunts and like, <laughs> like these like noises she would make throughout the play made it very clear like which of the play's kind of opinions or ideas she did and did not agree with. The only explanation I can come up with is that she then got more drunk in intermission. In the beginning of the second act, she started trying to talk to me and I had to shush her. What was she trying to say? So it's like there was an opinion about sort of this like one of the characters has this slight, you know, kind of white saviour complex and they're in the Middle East and 
there's this sort of very, like I found it very impressively kind of like self-aware, self-referential dialogue um, between this white woman and her friend who she doesn't realise can just like speak English. And this woman to my left just starts going, yeah, it's true, these like young people these days, blah, blah, blah. It was cooked. Okay, that bonkers to start talking because theatre, bad theatre etiquette is even worse than bad cinema etiquette because you can distract the performers. Yeah. But also why is she complaining to you about young people? (laughs) (laughs) Like shouldn't you make that comment to an older person if you're going to try and get someone on side? And it was like it's not a huge theatre either and it was theatre in the round and we were like four seats back. So he's like you you could have spat and kind of hit the stage. Oh and God. she just started a, sen- a whole sentence. And I went, shh. And, like, I can't believe I did this, like, put my hand up, to, like, in between her face and my face. Oh, my God. What did she do? Nothing. And then she was silent for the whole rest of oh, the show. Oh, good. Like, well, she Ugh. deserved the shush. What a fucking idiot. Anyway, I just fuming. Anyway, back to the top. The play. It's called Oil. It's written by Ella Hickson, who's a British playwright, and this production is directed at the Sydney Theatre Company by Paige Rattray. If anyone is listening and remembers why I was raving about Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, which I just talk about constantly now, people must be sick of it, that like tension between love and sort of freedom or independence, that is one of the core themes in Oil. So somehow... The play follows a woman and to a lesser extent her daughter throughout five points in history and yet it's like the same person. And when I went into this, I was sort of sceptical and a bit cringy, like, oh, this is going to be sort of high school drama, like symbolism through time, like universal human theme. No, I was completely invested and engaged in these characters' stories through every shift in time. And the other thing that it grapples with is something that I also spend a lot of time sort of trying to challenge myself on or grappling with, which is that ambition and sort of greed are just two sides of the same coin. And so when it talks about sort of oil and human nature, it deals with both how admirable it is that humans are always you know, striving and like trying to improve their circumstances for themselves and for their children. But at the same time, that sort of promise of eternal growth and expansion and betterment is what leads to empire and colonization and fucked up things on a huge geopolitical scale. And it was like, these are core themes that I spend a lot of time thinking and feeling about. And I just fucking, I loved this play. I thought it was so, so good. Oh, I'm so depressed that my awful children meant that I couldn't come and see it with you because you invited me to. I am going to try and see it, but it's just so difficult to get to the theatre with kids. But I had a very intense kids week as well. I was trying to figure out how to talk about this play too because what really bummed me out was that I was there on a Saturday night performance. The play has only just opened. I'm pretty sure it started last week. And for the record, it goes until the 19th of December. The theatre was half empty. Really? And I was, when I went in, I was like, yeah, it's because the, <laughs> the description, like, doesn't do justice, I think, to how incredibly intelligent and gripping and, and, and great it is and how it pulls off this quite what on paper sounds like a harebrained high school drama theme. 
And then I just was so bummed by the time I got to intermission and was raving about it to my husband, who, by the way, fucking hated it. Oh, (laughs) really? Yeah, which has just like- That's interesting. All the more convinced me of its excellence because great art can't please everyone. When I went into intermission raving about it and he hated it, I was like, that just proves my point. I love that you can take someone thinking something that you like is shit and be like, oh, no, 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 that's proving that I'm correct. (laughs) Yeah, but it proves that my love of it was like the correct intuition for me, for like my response as a viewer. Anyway, if you are skeptical based on my description, don't be because clearly people must be skeptical about this play based on like the description that's available online because they're not going to it and they should. It's only just opened, hasn't it? Yeah. Hopefully word of mouth spreads like wildfire. Oh, kind of like if what I happened. have anything to do <laughs> <Yeah>. with it. <laughs> <laughs> like what happened with Picture of Dorian Gray. It yes. did have a strong opening, but by the mid midway through that run, everyone was yeah. talking about it. And it had like it. four extensions. Every one of them yeah. sold out. Repeat. Yeah, for sure. I've, got, I've actually got friends who are flying to London to see Sarah Snook do that play. Oh, I, wonder- I love how extravagant that is. That is extravagant. Anyway, you invited me to the opening night of Oil, but, but I couldn't go because my children got in the way, as they often do. Just um, so ironic, sorry, given the themes of the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had such an intense week with them as well. Maddie's away for work, so I'm doing everything, which is like getting them ready, work, pick up, you know, evening, put them to bed. Like you, it's just relentless. Like it's just like one foot in front of the other. The first night Matt was away, Cormac vomited in my bed at 2am. Oh my God. Which is just right. devastating moment. And so, and thankfully my family were actually. My reproductive organs just yeah. like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> thankfully my family were still, this will absolutely happen to you if you ever have a child. They vomit in your bed. It's disgusting. And for like no reason sometimes as well. My family were staying with us that night, thankfully, and my sister woke up and she's also a nurse. So when I was cleaning Cormac up in the bathroom, she changed the sheets on the bed and I love it when my mum or my sister or my brother makes my bed because the nurse hospital corners. (gasps) (gasps) It's the best made bed you'll ever get into. So my sister very generously at 2am, I think she just heard and um, she – so she changed the sheets while I cleaned Cormac up. Me and Cormac get back into bed. No. Yes. Oh, my God. He vomited again. I could have cried. I honestly, it's at those moments. It's like the oh some God. of the lowest moments you will have is at like 3 a.m. <laughs> with a child. And I could have cried. Anyway, sorted it out, changed again, put a towel down so that if he was sick again, it was on the towel. Gave him a bucket and stuff, obviously. But they don't, he's three, so they don't really know. The reason they vomit all over the bed is they don't know that it's coming. Like they don't quite understand that they should run to the bathroom or put their head over the side. And he was so sick the next day. My family were leaving that day, but they looked after him in the morning. I went to work, sorted out work stuff, did my meetings, had to come back in the middle of the day to take care of him. And he just slept and slept and slept. He was so sick. They're never so adorable as when they're sick. Like he's, he was so gorgeous and so vulnerable and so sad. Your heart just breaks. And I sent a photo of him to some of my friends and I said, why are they so adorable when they're sick? And one wrote back so that you look after them even though they're completely useless. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And he slept and slept. I actually got a bit concerned that because he wasn't drinking water and he hadn't gone to the bathroom. And so I was like, oh, no, he's going to get dehydrated and I'm going to have to go to hospital and I'm by myself. I'm going to have to take Hamish with me or leave it. You know, what am I going to do? I moved him from the leather couch to a bed and then, of course, he pissed the bed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
of its relief, like, you know, oh, he's not dehydrating, you know, it's all good. I don't have to go to hospital. But also, like, man, you just spent six hours on the leather couch. Couldn't you have done it on the leather couch? And so, but while he's sleeping, it's actually super easy to look after him. And I picked up this book. <laughs> Unconscious kids are easy. <laughs> oh, they really are, Bray. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> the worst is when your kid is sick but still energetic, which is like Ugh. when they've got hand, foot and mouth. So you've got to keep him inside, but they're bouncing off the walls. Anyway, he's passed out, so I'm lying next to him, which, which was part of the reason that I moved into the bed so that I could lie down next to him and keep an eye on him. Picked up this book, started flipping through it, completely engrossed, red and red and red. Hamish came home. I gave him dinner, lay down again, red and red and red. I didn't even give him a bath that night because I was reading this book. And I'm lying between them, exhausted, obviously, from the previous night and just the whole weekend. Kept reading until midnight and then picked it up the next morning because I had to look after Cormac again and finished it. Oh, my God. What is the book? The book is... The Work by Brie Lee. Oh, my God. <laughs> true, true story. Oh, I was gripped, totally engrossed. Oh and there's so. <laughs> and when I picked it up, I was like, oh, I've told her I'm not going to read it for a couple of weeks, oh but God. I'm lying here now. Like, I'll just flip through it. Oh, she's crying. No, I'm not. <laughs> Brie has emotions, everyone. About her work. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was. There was so much that I thought about it and there's so much I want to ask you about, but I'm not going to go into it right now because we'll save it for when it's coming out and I'll ask you all my super interesting questions. But I wanted to make a couple of observations about it. I found it very Rooney-esque. Oh, yeah. I think that I'll take it. any fans of – she's a great it, writer. I hope it sells like that. <laughs> yeah. No, and she's, a, she's an amazing she writer. Is. She is. And I found it very Rooney-esque in what it – it grappled with, like the um, politics between two people that are so personal but can also go out to, like, uh, provoke you into thinking about wider issues. It's sold as, like, the intersection of what art and class and privilege and ambition. What I thought it was a lot about, though, and what I really like in a book or love in a book is the gap between who you want to be and who you actually are. Mm. And why people behave the way that they do, even though it's not aligned with the vision they have of themselves. Like it's a very, very human condition. I think it's especially millennial too, because yeah. we're the first generation that grew up when we were like still coming of age with smartphones, like an ability to compare to other people and yeah. be more aspirational than ever before. Totally. But I, I loved that. I so much. Each character, you could see it manifesting in different ways. Then you know behaving in ways that I think were even surprising to themselves or or baffled them. Also, by the way, on Patrick's side almost all of the time, our Patrick, and I was like, can these women stop going our Patrick about how privileged he is and, and pushing their feminist agendas on him? Because at every stage of editorial feedback from my, like, publisher and editor, they were like, you need to put more things in that, like, will make the reader on Patrick's side. Oh, I was totally on his side. Friday. <laughs> but we know I'm a terrible manif- uh, yeah. feminist because of the love I have yeah. for the men in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was always like, stop going him. He's trying his best. My God. Play off. Oh, um, and there were such specific questions I have to ask you about certain things and 
and character motivations for things. And then the last thing I will say, which I think will be one of the most common observations, is it is so horny. (laughs) (laughs) My husband said it was the horniest thing he'd ever read. (laughs) Is it the horniest thing I've ever? It's I. It's up there. I probably read a lot more horny books than your husband. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. When he said that to me, I was like, he's much more visual. I make no comment about that. <laughs> um, but when he said it, I was like, oh, whatever. That doesn't mean much. You don't like, he doesn't read fiction really anyway. But if you say but, it, you read a fuck ton of fiction. Yeah, it was great. Well, sex is a big deal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, I think it's a cop out when sex isn't included in a book most Same. of the time. Same. But also there is like so much sex in this book. <laughs> you know why though? The first draft of it was over 180,000 words. And when it was that long, which for anyone listening, like the average novel you read would be like maybe 80. Like so the first draft of my book was twice as long as a normal book should be. And when I drafted it at that length, the sex scenes occurred in like (laughs) much more of a rational like kind of into oh. like at, like dispersed throughout yeah, yeah. the book. There was more things happening, happening between in the, between. Yeah. And I kept obviously getting the feedback from my early readers, like my agent and publisher, obviously, who were like, this is way too long, cut it. And I was like, okay, well, there's a lot of sex. I'll just cut. And they were like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes from 180 down to it's only just over 100. So almost half of the book is cut. None of the sex scenes ever got cut and none of them were ever edited. They oh, are the really? only part. Like that book has been, you can imagine, just combed over and combed over and combed over by me and other people for so long now. And the sex scenes are one of the only things that just never changed. How do you approach writing them? Do you have to get into um, a particular headspace or is it just like the, what you're doing that day? In general, I'm not at all, I try not to be wanky about process because I think people can convince themselves of like, oh, I need these conditions in order to write. But I would say specifically with fiction and writing sex scenes, I have to be on my own. Like I can't have like, my phone can't be going off. I can't have deadlines of other things. I have to be like just really in the zone. But also, sorry, to answer your question properly, it is completely dependent on whose perspective you're in. So I wrote, the book is like dual perspectives in alternating chapters, like a chapter from him and then a chapter from her. I wrote the whole thing from one of their perspectives and then put it aside for months and then began the whole other person's perspective. Oh, is that how, because you, yeah. it's a really difficult thing to pull off two perspectives, especially when it is so one chapter one, one chapter the other, one mm. chapter one to alternate like that. So I was curious about that technical side. Yeah, drafted at completely different times with like a spreadsheet so that I knew which events needed to take place so that I didn't even have to read the other ones so that I wouldn't get their voices too overlapping. Which you didn't. Like it's two very two very distinct voices. Poor Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, whose side I'm on. I think you will be the only person. Oh, it will be. I am so curious to see the broad reaction to this. Anyway, annoying to talk about a book that's not out for months, but we will put the pre-order link in the show notes. I love pre-ordering as well because sometimes I hear or read something that makes me excited and then I pre-order. And forget. Yeah, Same. and it lands on publication day. Like yeah. on publication day, it's on your doorstep. Sometimes. Earlier. Earlier. Yeah. Sometimes you do, especially in Australia, I think they're not so strict and you get it like a week earlier sometimes, yeah. Yeah. which I love. Yeah. Well, oh. it also ties into the movie I watched which was 
you hurt my feelings. Oh my god, I can't do it. I think you should. It's really funny and it's really, really well done. And it's so you hurt my feelings. Brie had previously talked about how she had a lot of body horror. I think just the trailer and the outline. Yeah, it's about a woman who has done a best-selling memoir and then attempts fiction. <laughs> <laughs> just having like played by Julia Dreyfus Louis. So Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yep, who I love and. She overhears her husband in the street talking about how he doesn't actually like her novel. And and, and that Can't and that's kind of the big setup. And I watched it. I watched it because I love that type of movie. I love her. You had mentioned it and I thought, oh, I've got to watch it and talk to Brie about it. And also it's an hour and a half movie. Love a short film. Yes, which is more and more difficult to to find. Yeah. I loved it. it. What it actually is is like a very nuanced portrait of a marriage Mm. and like what is honesty in a marriage and when is it okay to lie and what is actually a lie or deception and motivations for doing it and also just a broader portrait of their marriage in being so good with each other in some ways and then not in others and the guy I forget the name of the actor but he plays Prince Philip in one of the thing seasons of the crown oh yeah yeah and so he's super hot They've got, oh, he's hot. They've got chemistry. And it's really funny film. Like you laugh every scene. And so I thought it was a great. Do you think my marriage would survive me watching it? Yeah, totally. Because if I don't, it's not comparable to your marriage at all because he's been reading the drafts. Oh, no, I would never yeah, do that. And so, stupid. And, he, and she has been redrafting and redrafting and redrafting and getting him to read every oh, draft. Oh, no, what an idiot. Yeah. So it's very different to yours. And also it's ve- it's still very loving. And, like, the end of it kind of is, who cares if he, maybe you will have one less reader that you care about after you see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> My list of five is now four. But, yeah, but it's um, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Really recommend as, like, Friday night. You've just reminded me. I wasn't even going to talk about this. I went and saw Faux. The, the, it's a new film out. I had seen barely any promotion oh, of it. With I C- saw the trailer and thought it looked lame as hell. No, it's good. Yeah, because, then I read your review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's with Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mezcal, and they are, like, so good in this. And something you mentioned just then where you said, actually, it's about their marriage. That's what this film was for me. So it's set, you know, this is all in the trailer, no spoilers. It's set in the future when the planet Earth has been devastated by a series of rolling droughts um, and so humans are at varying degrees of going off world and sort of leaving the Earth. And we meet this married couple and learn that he is probably going to have to go off world but she will be left behind with some kind of, you know, like robot replacement of him. And so it's set in sci-fi land sort of or like dystopian future land. Actually, the whole thing is about their marriage and about. I think that's what yeah. turned me off in the trailer. I was like, ew, science fiction. Um, because I love those two actors so much. And then I watched the trailer and I thought, this is lame. Why? The, the, why, why, why isn't the plot about their feelings? <laughs> but it sounds like it is. It is entirely about their marriage. And by the end, I was just bawling. Like, oh, really? Just, like. There was me and my husband and then one other couple in the theatre and I was, like, sobbing. Okay, I definitely want to watch. How long is it? Tight 90? Maybe a touch more than that, but it never felt long. Okay. I'm going to put it on my list of things to watch. Because I'm sorry, but I find genre fiction, like sci-fi, fantasy, history, is often much more thoughtful for a reader 
or for the audience than quote unquote literary fiction, whatever that means. They just like want to give the reader what they want. And often what the reader wants is like for something to happen and then for it to finish. <laughs> I just really like things with the plot. And I guess sci-fi is a plot, obviously. Genre fiction is all plot. Yeah, but no, You've but got I- a mental block about this and I'm going to break through it and we're going to break through it together. <laughs> I just like things set in reality. Like you've got mail. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, you've got mail. Um, segues or or being set in re- in reality and our reality segues into this piece. I really wanted to discuss with you, which oh, you yeah. haven't read. No, so good. Anne Helen Peterson, which I think a lot of uh, listeners will have heard of, very high profile newsletter writer in America. She was like the burnout queen. She came up with the millennial, not well, not came up with it, but she very much popularized the millennial burnout concept a few years ago. And just her substack is called Culture Study. Culture Study. Yeah. She used to be called, um, her Tumblr was called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style. Oh, I did not know that. That's it. When I got into it was when she had the Tumblr. Wow. And um, I think that's such a better name. Yeah, I like that. And it's what got me into her because it does, she does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Like, which brings this very, very thoughtful perspective to things that are popular. Yeah. Anyway, she wrote um, a newsletter this week called. And normally I read almost all of hers. So yeah, it's quite, and you d- yeah. Well, it only just came out. So I think that's why you've missed it. You're probably going to read it this afternoon. You only like the beginning of things, it is called. Ooh. And it is about. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship and why people have become so invested in it. So, Brady, just finding any fucking excuse to talk about Taylor Swift on this show. (laughs) Well, I had, I have a question for you that I already know the answer to, which is, are you interested in this at all? Um, Travis and Taylor. Um, I mean, no, not and neither am I. But what I am interested in is how. I think Swift has demonstrated very clearly that she can choose to be very private when she wants to be and she has chosen not to be private about this, which just makes me like, not that sceptical is a strong word, but like there is a component to this new relationship that is undeniably performative. And so then I just become curious, like, well, what's her plan? What's her end game here? Because she's someone who schemes and plans so much. I find that so fascinating as well, like yeah. that she can, if she actually really wants to be, she can disappear. Yeah. If she wants to, she can disappear. Yeah. And and that period of her disappearing and then doing this relationship publicly, and I do agree that elements of it are performative, although obviously the relationship I think is real. Oh, I agree. Yeah, it's like no conspiracy theories about it being fake. But I do find that more interesting than the actual relationship, her choosing to do this public narrative. I'm not actually that interested in her love life, even though I love her music and deeply connect to a lot of it. And I think it's because a lot of the people she publicly dates are just super boring. (laughs) So, and I'm not compelled by them at all. Can you remember the last? Do you think, is she not super boring? Well, her music isn't. Okay. I don't know how you can argue that her music is boring. Well, what do you mean when you say the men are boring? Like I'm just not interested in her dating them because I think they're they're boring. I think this is getting boring. Let's not get into it. <laughs> okay. Because it isn't my point. All right. I'm just saying that it's I haven't been particularly invested in it, but I am interested in 
why people are so invested in this. Can you remember the last celebrity relationship that you were invested in or interested in? I find it very difficult to rouse myself to be enthused by celebrities' personal lives in general, but I would say... Oh, wow, say, what a surprise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't, I don't know these people. Amy Winehouse, when she dated that guy and then he fucked her over and then she wrote the greatest album of all time. I guess. Sounds like you were more interested in the album than the actual relationship. So no, sorry. I'm sorry. So I remember the last celebrity relationship that I was really interested in and it was Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Oh. And I am not interested in the royals. No. At all. But I was super interested. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I was super interested in that relationship because I looked for new photos. I followed the narrative and it was like this slow burning narrative that came out. I was excited by it. Why? Well, I can tell you in retrospect, looking back on it, I think that I was really into it because it was a woman in her mid-30s and something really different and life-changing happening to her and her whole life being transformed. And I loved that it was outside of that narrative of everything exciting happening in your 20s and your life being pretty much in place by your mid-30s. And in retrospect, I think I saw it as a story of like anything can happen at any time. Possibly the only wholesome take I have heard (laughs) (laughs) about that relationship and the media. Yeah. Oh, I lost, I lost interest fairly quickly, but I do remember being very interested in the lead up to the engagement and the lead up to the wedding. Anyway, Anne writes in this newsletter. So the newsletter is is about why are people so invested in Travis and Taylor's relationship and people beyond her normal fan base. And she, she includes herself in this. And she says she's had a lot of DMs from people saying to her, I can't believe I'm so interested in this and I'm not even usually interested. I find that quite fascinating. And so she wrote this really interesting newsletter and she compared it to millennials becoming obsessed with Twilight when they were in their (laughs) 20s and how people were really invested in that romance story and how it's just pure fantasy. And she said the best explanation she found for that story's magnetism of Twilight for people, you know, proper adults and people being interested in Taylor and Travis came from the theorist Elizabeth Cowie. Cowart posits fantasy as mise-en-scene of desire, a setting forth of an elaborate scene of drawn-out pleasure, of almost and near misses, of denial and the controlling of masculine and feminine subject positions. In Cow's words, fantasy depends not on particular objects, but on their setting out, and the pleasure of fantasy lies in the setting out, not in the having of the objects. And so it's all about the... Anticipation. Anticipation and what could happen and not actually, like once you have the object, then you have to deal with the realities of it. But it's about the fantasy in your head. And she says, it means that for a people you think about, you don't think of yourself as Taylor or Travis when you're interested in the scenario, but it's a Taylor and Travis-like scenario unfurling in your life. A hot, (laughs) I would dispute that, a hot, thoughtful, big guy who also appreciates and respects your power and talent, hello, it fosters or returns you to a feeling of frisson, the near nausea that is falling in love, not the longer and differently fulfilling labour of love itself. Well, this is Disney, right? Every single Disney film that's all about the like flirtatious beginning and then the film literally finishes when they get married. This is why we have the fairy tale narrative that ends with the wedding because what happens, like, I find it compelling what happens Marriage. after that. But, you know, the <laughs> yeah. day-to-day life of a long-term relationship is just never going to be as thrilling as the fantasy. I think that that's a really interesting perspective of it and so true and also a good reminder for people 
in their day-to-day life, whether they're in a long-term relationship or not, or just in, um, you know, maybe their relationship with their family or their relationship with their job. And this feeling, particularly in the online world, that there could be something better that we're doing. We would be happier if we did this thing different and not necessarily. You would just be, you know, you it would be thrilling for a little while to, you know, blow up your relationship and have an affair, but then dealing with the aftermath of it, mm. not so glamorous. Same with like, you know, what city you live in, you choose to live in, for example, London, and then you think, oh, it'd be so much more glamorous if I lived in New York. Well, in New York, you still have to like get your groceries, cook your dinner, pay your bills. Like it's, you know, the fantasy is always better than the reality. And this reminds me too of that thing that I think a lot of us went through in our 20s where we sort of told ourselves that if we like moved cities or got a different job that we would be a different person who we liked more. Yeah. And also have better skin. Oh, yeah. And And exercise regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole like fantasy about, yeah. yeah. And so I think she's very correct about the broad appeal of that and that's why people are into it. But then she goes on, takes it even further to a place that I found really interesting as well where she says, you know, there's a famous theory that people love musicals so much because it delivers them a utopia and it doesn't deliver them a utopia of what life would look like or be like. It delivers you the utopia of how life would feel. So when you're in the musical and being that happy and like into it, like you love the feeling of it. And she said Swift's life is a musical. It is. For many people. So she's like she's delivering you a utopia of how things would feel, not how utopia would actually look like because, you know, you're never going to be her on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people flying around on your jet. And then she says if you take that, and so this is like an act in Swift's musical, if you take Swift's whole body of work as a musical. Which comes back to this performative thing. Yeah, and so this is like the latest scene in that. And then she says when we think of the Kelsey narrative in the larger scheme of the Swift musical, she says the attraction becomes even more clear, particularly in this moment when we are confronted daily with suffering so intense it eludes precise description which when you take this relationship in the global context, no wonder people are trying to grab on to a brief fantasy of utopia while also dealing with and I think trying to engage with the reality of what's happening in our world, which is, you know, at the moment war in Gaza, I think is the main thing. And then she goes on even further. I just found the whole newsletter so thoughtful, so smart. It really articulated a lot of things that I've been grappling with. And another thing I grapple with on social media at the moment is the utter devastation that we are confronted with Mm. from Gaza, which is so difficult to consume, but I also don't don't think that we should look away or looking away is the answer. Yes. Like you have to engage with it. Yes. And how strange it is to engage with it on social media, particularly on Instagram. Yes. I've been thinking about this too. Where you're flicking and, and it's whiplash on Instagram where you're looking, watching videos out of Gaza of what is happening there and a lot of those pictures and videos involving children, but it doesn't matter which civilian they involve or who who they involve. It's devastating. And you're looking at that and then, you know, it comes up with your friend on a Latino harbour cruise on Saturday night and then it's back to the devastation and she said, you see that whiplash even in someone's own stories. I was just thinking that. It's not even like when I'm following different people, some people are like posting the like atrocities and some people are posting lifestyle content the same person is posting both and just like tapping through their stories is even within their profile whiplash and I think a lot about that whiplash about 
is this a bad thing? Is it a stupid thing? Is this such a shallow way to consume the news? And I obviously consume the news in a lot in a lot of different ways. It's yes. not my main source, but you know, it's what you look at a lot of days. Is this shallow? Is this strange? Well, I was wondering, like, the, is it desensitizing us in some way? Like, you know, we both just agree that the answer is not to just look away. But when I was like tapping through this week, I was like, there's got to be a way in which going backward and forward between a tablescape and like dead bodies is bluntening our responses. Or at least doing something just strange doing something. to our brain. And I'm like, well, maybe we shouldn't be looking on Instagram. Like yeah. don't look at but, – but then I'm like, But no, you can't not, not look yeah. on Instagram because other people are posting yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. It's got to be doing something though. I, yeah. yeah. And when she says, you know, the whiplash happens sometimes in a person's stories, she said, you might think that's crass or depending on your proximity to the violence, utterly imaginable. You might think it's evidence that someone really doesn't really care and in some cases that might be the case. But in many cases, and certainly in mine, it means quite the opposite. It means they care so much that they must occasionally seek utopia, no matter the form, no matter how seemingly dissonant. We return to fantasy not to forget, but to remember other futures are possible. Jesus Christ. I think there's something in that. I think that it can be slightly Pollyanna-ish and is excusing people who may post in a performative way or avoiding it. But also I do think that there's something in that that you can't just be down in the grimness all the time and you can't just sit back and say, well, I can't engage with it or I'm not going to do anything. Of course you should do things and there's a variety of things that you can do even from Australia. But we also have to be able to imagine the future. And I think that also or an alternative future or a better future because why go on otherwise if you can't? And I think that's also very applicable to climate change as well. Yeah. And I mean, this whiplash thing too, it's like one of the reasons why I've stopped using Instagram so much. It was like years, what, two and a half years ago now that I moved most of my digital activity, online activity towards a newsletter because Instagram just like flattens everything or makes me feel like I should have to flatten everything in a way that is not reflective of real life and that I resent and am constantly confused by. Yeah, I can understand that. And also Instagram is not work for me and Instagram was definitely work for Mm, you and I think that's why we have different approaches to it and I'm okay with it as part of my daily diet of information and it's certainly not the dominant part of my daily diet of information either for the serious things. Or for the fun things. Or for the fun things. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of my fun things happen more in group chats. Yeah, or when you're finding your friends. Yeah, yeah. or watching people on Find My Friends, <laughs> watching my sims go about their day on Find My Friends. So like the, uh, most of the fun is happening elsewhere and most of my serious witnessing and consumption is happening elsewhere and so I can deal with the whiplash on Instagram, although obviously I still think yeah, about it a lot. I think I've just like pushed t- too far through where – I know what it's like to use that platform for work purposes and so many people do use it for work purposes. I'm just like automatically sceptical or perhaps just cynical. I take a very cynical approach to that platform generally. So when I see the whiplash, I'm just suspicious of it. But then you can see also such genuine incredible activists on there as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I just see also a lot of misinformation on there too. Anyway, it was 
great newsletter. It's also not paywalled. So mm. we will link it in the show notes. So I was reading a hard copy of the newspapers, plural, at the co-working space where I have a desk and I found this story and automatically took a photo of it and sent it to you, Bridie. It was in the Fin Review. The headline in the print version was, Have the Young Lost Faith in the Value of Uni? Is that the headline online as well? Sometimes they have different um, headlines. I'm pretty sure that AFI usually have the same. It's a news feature. The subheading is declining enrollments are being blamed on high fees and good prospects in jobs that don't require a degree. And it's written by Julie Hare. And in general, I mean, this is something that you and I both have opinions about, which is higher education and how generational it is and how in our parents' generation it was one of sort of many options to enter the workforce, but increasingly we are in a sort of forced through academia employment pipeline. It's become almost an extension of high school. Yes. Yeah. Where you have to, no matter what job you're going to get, for the vast majority of jobs, you have to have a bachelor's degree at yep. least, even if it doesn't apply to your job or inform your work or actually help. People like, were shocked to learn. Like, So when I was at university and I had a job being like an admin and research assistant to a barrister, so this is not very long ago, there were people in chambers, barristers, who didn't have law degrees because they had come up essentially in what we would now call like traineeships and clerkships, shadowing other lawyers and then gotten on the real job experience. And that's even in law, in which is a sort of profession where people think of it as being extremely academic and extremely attached to the university pipeline. Which that's so fascinating because that would be one of the degrees that I would save. But I think, and maybe there is an argument that it is good that it's a degree and then go shadow, but there are, the ones I think a lot about are journalism, which I really don't think should be a degree. No. And I did a degree in a cadetship at the same time. I was very lucky. That's increasingly rare in Australia. From, so I had a job at a newspaper from when I was 18 and I learned so much more on the cadet. I learned how to be a journalist on the cadetship and I think that so many people who come out of uni with degrees and walk into a newsroom would just – have no real idea of what to do. But I also think it applies to nursing. Mm. You know, my mum came up the old way and a lot of my family came up the old way where you would go and train in a hospital. Your siblings? Like our generation? No, no, no. Our generation no. have to get yeah. degrees. So my brother and sister had to get degrees and then go in and there's a prac component of that. The thing that nurses do need, there is some chemistry they need to learn about drugs and how drugs oh, yeah. work and how, you know, they're compounded and all of that. But I think that that could just be a course within essentially a traineeship yeah, and that you learn so much more on the job than you do sitting at uni and passing all these exams. And my brother and sister actually, both of them struggled with quite a few of the exams and they're both excellent nurses. Mm. And there was a couple of exams that, yes, they do need that knowledge, but there were others that I knew I felt like it was just box ticking and it didn't really matter to the kind of nurse they would become or if they would be good or not, if they passed that exam or not. And also particularly noticeable for my youngest sister who worked as an assistant in nursing from when she was 16. Wow. So she knew the nursing, the physical nursing that she could do and I think had a much, much better idea about nursing and how to do it than loads of her um, peers at, peers at yeah. uni and but still had to go through this like quite long uni process. But And it's funny to think that barristers could be in the same grouping as journalists and nurses of much better to do it as a traineeship with some course involvement. Although, obviously, I still think 
universities are great, you know, amazing to have and should be there and can be extremely valuable for some people. And I wish that I didn't waste so much of my degree as well. Why do you feel like you wasted your degree? What In what way? Like wasted your time there, when or? yeah I wasted my time when my and my dad said it to me at the time as well and I wish that I'd listened but I was so young and dumb and I also had this job in the newspaper that was so exciting and was more my focus dad said to me you are never going to get this time again to just read and learn so take advantage of it yeah. and he's right that was a gift I and I didn't that. take advantage of that time to read I and learn that. and I feel the same but I think university for a lot of people these days is is just, like you said, it. it's an extension of high school. I would also say it's just an extended adolescence. Like we do everything later now yeah. than our parents' generation. And I, and I know there's some controversy, oh, not controversy, but I know there's differing opinions around hex and how it's the best debt that you'll ever have, like the best term debt and it's not actually it's true. a big burden on well, you going into true. your working life. Yeah. And <laughs> I and I think, yes, it is the best terms of debt you're, you're going to have. But if it's that big, like my, I was on scholarship at a uni, but it, it only paid for half of it. So then I had to go on fee help, which paid for the other half. They whack 30% on top of it. So my scholarship was essentially 20%, but I couldn't have the job in the newspaper without it. So still worth it. But I'm still paying off that debt. And it's not insignificant. It's $450 a month, which I really need that $450 a month. And my friend Rick Morden was a couple of years ahead of me in the exact same program, exact same debt. When we both came out of there, we had very similar debts. I think it was about $46,000. He paid his off before he was 30 because he went into jobs that were so much better paying than me. Mm -hmm. Like he went and worked for the Australian, he went and worked for government. And my, the jobs I took in different media organisations weren't as well paying. It took me ages to reach the threshold. And then, once again, my children completely screwed me. <laughs> because in my 30s, that's been two years of maternity leave where I did get paid for some of that maternity leave, but not all of it. So I wasn't paying the debt in that time. And I so also want to say here that like your situation a lot of people would also be resonating with and hurting with as well because the threshold at which you need to earn per annum in order for your hex repayments to kick in has in real terms decreased year after year. Yeah, it's so, and so they've yeah. they're copying. So it was sixty thousand when I was in my twenties and now it's forty five thousand yeah. about. Which that's so brutal to be paying it back then. And not to make everything about housing, but this is Australia. Everything is about housing. It is absolutely a liability against you when you are trying to get a mortgage. Yeah, and it's just, it's fine to pay for some of it and to go into the hex thing. But, you know, now those average debts are 50,000. That's a big debt. Yeah, mine was 60. My husband's was the same. I still have like 40 maybe. Like it's. Oh, really? I still have a huge hex debt. Yeah. And it does feel we're getting a little off topic, but it, that also makes it more unfair about so many jobs requiring a degree when you get to the job and you don't even really use the degree. But what I would say too, though, is like I talked about this sort of issue, I guess, a lot when I was touring for Who Gets to Be Smart and people were lamenting how, you know, which we just have been as well, all of these professions that now require university degrees. Something that is really important to talk about as well is like the opportunity cost of going to university and how it just doesn't even feel like an option for a lot of young people. And that's what that Finn Review article was partially about is like the two of the three biggest things 
that young people cited as reasons for not wanting to go to university were basically just money, like how expensive it is. But the trouble with that is that when we look at ABS statistics, there is still a demonstrable and strong correlation between people who have higher degrees earning more over their lifetimes than people who don't. Yeah, because all these jobs uselessly require it of you. Yeah. yeah. The only jo- like the job that you can get without a degree that will pay you just as met as much is basically tradies. And I can't think of much else beyond that. Yep. Yep. Anyway, what have you got this week? I'm still monk mode. (laughs) I'm ultra monk mode after, you know what? Can't wait for this weekend. I do. I'm not going to engage with my children. (laughs) Can't wait to hand them back to my husband after being away all week. I have a vomit free bed. A vomit free bed. I do not want to hear once this weekend. Mom. You know my theory, one of my theories on why we call our mum's mum and not their name? Why? Because you would get so (laughs) effing sick of hearing your name if your kids called you by your name. Like you would turn around one day, you'd be at work and someone would be like, Bridie, and I would be turning around and be like, what (laughs) now? They're over there. Where did you live? It it would trigger. It would trigger such a primal response. And so we've got to call our mum something different to their first name. I know there are plenty of people who call their parents by their first name, but I think that one of the reasons we need a different one from our kids is because you get so sick of hearing it. Well, to continue this theme of me having a fucking excellent time. While you're taking care of your kids. I'm in the trenches. Um, I'm going to see Isabella Manfredi perform. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Huge, huge fan. Where um, is she playing? Uh, somewhere in the inner west. <laughs> I still don't know Sydney suburbs. Along that sort of like Newtown Enmore area. Oh, um, that'll be so fun. Yeah, but, Great venues around there. Yeah, yeah. So she's doing this series. I think it's almost finished now. This is probably one of her last shows, this one in Sydney. This series of um, like – Unplugged, you know, it's like her at a piano rather than like because her body of work um, singing with the preachers is, you know, like plugged in very much rock and roll. And so this one is all her like much more intimate. That sounds like it's going to be so fun. Yeah. Can't wait to hear all about it. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie where we talk about our stories, the best stories and the biggest stories of the week. This has been produced by Sam Devonport and recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Please rate the podcast very highly if you like it. We still read even the one-star ones. They're pretty funny too. Leave us a review if you can. And you can find us on Instagram at Cool Story Bridie. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.